Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, talented musician and recording engineer, Adam Kamara, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. This week, uh, for our manifesto, we have Personism by the well-known and well-loved New York poet Frank O'Hara. Written originally in 1959, I believe, but not published until 1961. And then a poem by Frank Bedart, about whom Phil has plenty more to say. Uh, The title of that poem is Ellen West, drawing on the case of an actual uh, woman named Ellen West who suffered from anorexia nervosa, as it was then called, and I think an assortment of other maladies as well. So, Phil, anything to add? Uh, no, we should uh, get into it. Also, I should say we're 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 going to try and be a little bit more regular about uh, putting these podcasts out uh, in the coming days. We've been uh, uh, busy with a variety of things. Um, uh, I just finished a novel, and and, and Jake has had his own. Uh, own things that have been keeping him occupied, but uh, we're going to try and put them out once a month. Yeah, yeah, my thing uh, I'm not shy about telling people is that uh, I just had a daughter. Uh, yeah. So I've been um, enjoying fatherhood, but we do want to get more regular with this, so we're going to look for uh, – like an every three week schedule. We're also recording remotely, so if the sound quality is a bit off on this one, bear with us. But anyway, no one wants to hear the technical details. Let's get into this, man. All right. So, uh, personism. Why do you do personism? I did personism because uh, we've been doing all of this political stuff and heavy philosophical stuff. And first of all, I really like Frank O'Hara as a poet. I'm drawn to the kind of idea of the poet that O'Hara represents, as well as to the poems that O'Hara, the actual poet, wrote. Um, And I, I like personism as a statement of purpose and of art. And it's, look, it's often referred to as a mock manifesto which I think will will become clear why as we start to read some lines from it. But the truth is, like, if you're hearing mock <laughs> manifesto and you're thinking spinal tap, it's not that. You know, this is not the spinal tap of poetry manifesto. No knock on spinal tap, obviously. But this is not the spinal tap of poetry manifestos. It, it, it says something, I think, very real about his attitude. But it was, you know, sort of dashed off. Another... Um, poet had asked him for a manifesto and he like wrote it in less than an hour while while the guy who asked for it was coming across town to pick it up right so we should probably say a little bit about who o'hara is um uh i mean we don't really do potted backgrounds but i think it's it's he was part of the new york school of poets he was kind of he was in this sort of scene of poets who who moved a lot with 
um, artists. Uh, he worked at the Museum of Modern Art and famously wrote poems uh, during his lunch hour. Um, and they were part of this sort of not non-academic school that was sort of opposed to some of the, the sort of formalism uh, and just kind of idea of art um, that was kind of prevalent in you know places like Harvard, where a lot of the the New York folks had uh, New York school poets had 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 gone. Uh, there's a um, there was a uh, where is it? Um, Reuben Brower was an influential critic at the time who taught at Harvard. Uh, uh, gave a um, uh, this is his idea of what a poem is. A poem is a dramatic fiction, no less than a play, and its speaker, like the character of a play, is no less a creation of the words on the printed page. The person spoken to is also a fictional personage and never the actual audience of you and me, right? Uh, and so it's this very sort of, you know, the the poem as a formal, abstract art object. Um, and Kenneth Koch, who um, O'Hara was friends with, and they would sort of were kind of in a sort of friendly competition with each other. They'd tell each other about their writing. Um, you know, as, as Frank O'Hara was writing Second Avenue, which is a long poem of his, one of his earlier ones, um, they were sort of competitively telling each other about what they were working on. And this is Frank O'Hara has a, a sort of poem man, sort of, that's sort of a manifesto of its own uh, that I think gets at their attitude. It's called Fresh Air. This is a Coke poem, right? Not this, is, this, is, poem. this is a, this is a Coke poem. Yeah. yeah. At the Poem Society, a black-haired man stands up to say, You make me sick with all your talk about restraint and mature talent. Haven't you ever looked out the window at a painting by Matisse? Or did you always stay in hotels where there were too many spiders crawling on your visages? I'm afraid you have never smiled at the hibernation of bear cubs, except that you saw in it some deep relation to human suffering and wishes. Oh, what a bunch of crackpots. The black-haired man sits down. The others shoot arrows at him. A blonde man stands up and says, He is right. Why should we be organized to defend the kingdom of dullness? There are so many slimy people connected with poetry, too, and people who know nothing about it. I'm not recommending that poets like each other and organize to fight them, but simply that lightning should strike them. And then later, the strangler comes to strangle bad poets. Here is the strangler dressed in a cowboy suit, leaping from his horse to annihilate the students of myth. The strangler's ear is alert for the names of Orpheus, Cuchulain, Gawain, and Odysseus, and for poems addressed to Jane Austen, F. Scott Fitzgerald, to Ezra Pound, and to personages no longer living, even in anyone's thoughts. Oh, strangler the strangler. Yeah, I mean, look, the the, uh, poet wishing for the violent death of other poets whom they declare the enemy of poetry uh, is its own genre in a way. You know, it's... And it's the same with uh, visual artists. Um, I mean, uh, Daniel Close, uh, the great illustrator and comic artist, you know, had Art School Confidential turned into a very strange, almost fascinatingly bad, and yet in the final analysis, still bad, but compellingly so movie, Art School Confidential directed by Terry Zweigoff, all about a disgruntled painter killing people but um mm-hmm. but yeah o'hara's uh deeply embedded in this 
New York artistic demimonde at the time. And the, the New York school name is actually borrowed from the abstract expressionist painters. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, O'Hara's working at the Museum of Modern Art. He's writing these lunch poems while he's at the MoMA. Famously, I think when he left the MoMA or when he died, they opened up the desk drawers uh, where he worked there. And they were just stuffed full of these poems written extemporaneously that he yeah. dashed off and forgot about. Or, or so goes the legend, at least. And I, I'd rather not challenge it. Um, there, there's from the the intro to the collected poems uh, uh, in the um, – uh, John Ashbery writes the introduction, and it was a this it was 586 pages. Uh, and Ashbery wrote that the collected pr- poems of Frank O'Hara should turn out to be a volume of the present dimension will surprise those who knew him, and would have surprised Frank even more. Dashing the poems off at odd moments uh, in his office at the Museum of Modern Art in the street at lunchtime, or even in a room full of people who then put them away in drawers and cartons and half forget them. Once when a publisher asked him for a manuscript, he spent weeks and months combing the apartment, enthusiastic and bored at the same time, trying to assemble the poems. Finally, he let the project drop, not because he didn't wish his work to appear, but because his thoughts were elsewhere in the urban world of fantasy where the poems came from. Yeah. Yeah, And I think if you're trying to sort of situate O'Hara, New York school stuff, um, and what he represents historically, there are a few other things worth saying, right? The first is that O'Hara is openly gay long before that becomes even a rebellious political statement, right? So this is in the early 1950s. I mean, of course, there was a a gay scene in New York long before the uh, sort of gay rights and gay liberation movement. But but O'Hara writes a poem, Homosexuality, I think it's in 1950. Four, it's certainly in the early fifties, um, and uh, and and he is engaged in this sort of um, there's the this kind of celebration of living and of sociability and of um, this play with identity and with social engagement that, that runs through, I think, all of his best work. And some of this is like, you know, you're coming, O'Hara served in the Navy, though not during the war, uh, I believe. But so O'Hara is writing in the aftermath of World War II and this demimond that he's a part of is coming after high modernism and after the kind of peak of existential anxiety of horrors of the camps, the horrors of Nazism. Um, and and it's this, you know, the hangover even is sort of over and it's this restoration of uh, playfulness in life and of, uh, not that they lack seriousness, but they are not interested in this high formal approach to art, nor are they interested in this... Um, uh, yeah. morbidity and and so yeah the, the the poem that i read from coke is titled fresh air right, right which i right. think sort of is is gives you an idea of what they're thinking yeah so that's that's where they are i think in that moment especially in the the early and mid 50s okay so then we get to uh 59 which is when and and, and also like an interest in <sighs> Like, 
there's this sort of, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to always be going for the grand theme that actually sort of um, the the quotidian. Uh, there's there's a bit from a, a Frank O'Hara poem from Meditations in an Emergency. Um, uh, I'm the least difficult of men. All I want is boundless love. Even trees understand me. Good heavens, I lie under them too, don't I? I'm just like a pile of leaves. However, I've never clogged myself with the praises of pastoral life, nor with nostalgia for an innocent past of perverted acts and pastures. No, one need never leave the confines of New York to get all the greenery one wishes. I can't even enjoy a blade of grass unless I know there's a subway handy or a record store or some other sign that people do not totally regret life. Yeah, that's a great poem, first of all. That, that's one of the first O'Hara poems I ever read and has mm-hmm. stuck with me uh, for 20 years, but uh, actually longer than 20 years. Jesus. Um, uh, yeah, and, th- and that, 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 that notion of the sort of, you know, unless there's a subway handy or a record store or some sign that people don't totally regret life, that, um, you know, these sort of more, I don't know, seemingly mundane, the sort of just kind of daily texture of his lunch breaks, yeah, right? But, yeah, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. And, you know, like, uh, it's central to understanding O'Hara, but th- it's more actually, there's a more literal interpretation or more obvious interpretation from the poem you just read, which is that he's an urban poet. He's writing about cities. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is an anti-pastoralism. Uh, he yeah. is very much a city poet. And when you're talking about the quotidian, it's not a studied sense of the quotidian. It's not right. a an obligation to social realism. It's not a considered belief. I mean, it is a considered belief or it is a deliberate style. Well, it's not a – neither is it a sense of social obligation to the quotidian in a kind of – you know, the sense of honoring uh, the proletariat or, or honoring the uh, social realities trampled on by high art and, and great men versions of history. Um, it is a lo- locating the aesthetic and locating the obs- observational aesthetic in these fleeting but compelling moments of daily urban life, right? It's experiential in that way. And it's, this is why they're dashed off in part. It's an attempt to recapture, especially in in the poems of the city and O'Hara wrote many of them. It's an attempt to recapture these fleeting but enthralling exchanges that occur on the street, both between the observer the poet, the walker, and other people in the city, and between the poet and himself. You know, it's, you're yeah. walking, this moment strikes you, and O'Hara's trying to capture that. Yeah, Coke said that, um, described him as being an incredibly natural poet, where compared to him, every everyone else seemed a little self-conscious, abashed, or megalomaniacal. And it's sort of like, I think that you get the sense that it's not that there's no, it's not that there's no sort of, art or craft because obviously he has that but um i think part of that sort of dashed off quality is to avoid allowing these things to become too digested so if there's abstraction if there's a sort of um call to sort of high art or highfalutin ideals 
that then gets merged with these sort of observations, it's going to be because that sort of – he is the sort of person for whom – those connections are going to just sort of naturally appear as he's walking through the city uh, and sort of experiencing the world around him, and he wants you to get close to that that um, kind of level of experience. So you provide us with a good transition into the manifesto itself. Um, Let's do it. Which deals directly with this question of abstraction. So let me just read the first paragraph of the manifesto. This is from Frank O'Hara's Personism. Everything is in the poems, but at the risk of sounding like the poor wealthy man's Allen Ginsberg, I will write to you because I just heard that one of my fellow poets thinks that a poem of mine that can't be got at one reading is because I was confused too. Now come on, I don't believe in God, so I don't have to make elaborately sounded structures. I hate Vasha Lindsay, always have. I don't even like rhythm, assonance, all that stuff. You just go on your nerve. If someone's chasing you down the street with a knife, you just run. You don't turn around and shout, give it up. I was a track star for Mineola Prep. Now that is, I mean, in, in, every, in every detail, wonderful and captures, uh, I think a lot of what we were just talking about, a lot of what he's going to lay out. To begin with, it's funny, right? And it's actually yeah. funny, and that's why you're laughing. And it, it's not a um, it's not a uh, preciously constructed uh, hymn to funniness. It's like ah, yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, uh, the poor wealthy man's Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> Allen Ginsberg is uh, not a bad title, but it's also you know it's funny in this way that's like lightly it's self-aware but it's not it's not drearily self-aware it's not overbearingly self-aware it's lightly self-aware uh you know in the sense of uh as with all of o'hara's best you get the sense of a dashing a guy who's a great conversationalist there's something immediately uh magnetic and and compelling about it as a presence as a persona now he goes on from the the ginsburg line to say i will write to you because i just heard that one of my fellow poets poets thinks that a poem of mine that can't be got at one reading is because i was confused too you know the the serious point to take here is that he's talking about what he intends for his poems to be what they should do. Uh, Vasha Lindsay, who he references later, is this earlier American poet famous for singing his poems. And what O'Hara is rejecting is this kind of high formalism. And some of this is done in a, you know, a way that's, uh, that's obviously kind of tongue in cheek. He doesn't even like rhythm, assonance, all that stuff. I don't <laughs> trust me. O'Hara didn't have any problem with rhythm. Uh, you right. know, he was in, was in deeply into the jazz scene at the time. His poems are very rhythmic. Some of them can be very rhythmic. But what he's saying is you go on your nerve in that the rhythm doesn't just it, – it's not just that it doesn't need to be elaborately metered to conform to uh, you know formal poetic convention. It's also that the, the rhythm that it does have – is supposed to express 
the feeling of the poem in a more uh, naturalistic uh, uh, meeting of, of form and substance. You know that the, the rhythm is contained within the immediacy of the expression of the sentiment. And, you know, this is more or less true at different phases of his career, but I think it's important to say that it's truest where he's at the height of his poetic ability. Yeah. When when O'Hara is in peak command of his powers, this stuff is truest. You mentioned Second Avenue before, which is a long, surrealist poem. Second, yeah. Second Avenue, nobody wants to read Second Avenue. I've read Second no. Avenue. Uh, there are some moments in Second Avenue. There are some images that, you know, explode in the sky, and there's some nice fireworks in Second Avenue, but nobody wants to read Second Avenue now, and it doesn't finally work. Even even John As uh, Asbury referred to the obfuscation that me makes reading Second Avenue such a difficult pleasure. And if John Asbury is accusing you of obfuscation, you are <laughs> you are in a difficult oh, man, spot. I, I've never heard that, but what's that from, the Asbury line? That's from his introduction to the collected poems, yeah. Oh, very good. All right, so mm. Ashbury has picked up on a... Uh, my observations about O'Hara, I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and also, just it's just a great line. It's funny, the, the bit about, like, you know, you go on your nerves, someone's chasing you down the street. Uh, you know, I, I looked up some, a bunch of different, like, analyses of um, personism, and it's kind of painful to watch academics break down the knife line, you know? And they're like, so you see, if you stopped in the middle of the street and said give it up, I was a track star for Mineola Prep, that would make it more likely that the person chasing you with the knife would get you. And then, like, going through this, you know, very tight, uh, and it's sort of, I, there, there's a way in which, you know, it kind of ruins it if you put too much pressure on it, um, but you sort of immediately, you know, you immediately grasp the point. It doesn't require that much uh, yeah, I did read one essay. Uh, I thought got it and was and was quite good. It was by a guy named Stephen Burt or Stephen Burt, written mm -hmm. for Poets.org in two thousand and five. It's called "Okay, I'll Call You." Yes, call me Frank O'Hara's personism. And this is uh, what Burt writes in part. He says that's how a personist poem works. And it's why personism isn't, as I once believed, just a parody of manifestos, but a good way to describe what O'Hara invented. Um, O'Hara's best poems come off informal, almost inordinately sympathetic, charmed, especially alert to comedy, intimately privileged. They leave me, at least, almost defensive. I want to explain away flaws in the work, but finally admiring. I want to look up to him. I want his approval rather than wanting to help the poor guy. And, and, you know, I think that gets at something essential, which is you get this very clear sense of the poet in O'Hara's poems, though it's not always of the poet. You get a clear sense of the speaker, I should say. And the speaker is often uh, a poet. You know, in the city poems in particular, you have mm -hmm. a sense of the poetic observation. But what you're, you're really – what you're really doing is you're being charmed by a personality. And there's a line somewhere in personism where O'Hara rejects personality as part of it, which is totally ridiculous because his poems all, yeah. they all ride on the personality. And you are, yeah. you know, if you think of like, you're at a, a party, right? 
think back to when we used to go to parties, Phil. The thing is, you know, if you think of like, who are you drawn to at a party? Think about the person who's really magnetic, who has a, a circle of people around them at the party and you're listening intently. You know, that really that captivating personality. You're not listening intently because what they're saying is so interesting, right? The, the dull guy in the corner might have more interesting things to say. There's something a priori. There's something pre-substantive that's drawn you to them, something magnetic, something... Uh, uh, perhaps buoyant, vital in their person that brings you close to them. And then you listen because you just want to be near them, you know? And there's something in O'Hara immediately in these poems where you want to sort of, you want to be close to it. It seems fun and engaging and alive and like you'll be more alive in its presence. Then he turned to me and said, you see, you have it easy because you're a faggot. Why don't you get married? You'd make a much better father than I would. Allen Ginsberg from the audience. Shut up and let him read. Gregory. And you're a fucking faggot too, Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> Willard Moss. He was a poet who was the husband of Marie Mencken, the filmmaker. Why don't you marry Frank if you want, if you want to so much, Gregory? <laughs> Jack Kerouac, let me read. I want to read from Dr. Sachs, his new novel. Gregory, no, it's our reading. You stay out of it. <laughs> so I read a few things ending with the ode to Mike Goldberg. Gregory said, that's beautiful. And everyone seemed to be interested when Jack K. said, you're ruining American poetry, O'Hara. Me, that's more than you ever did for it. <laughs> He writes this in 1959, as he says in Personism, in response to uh, a lunch he had with uh, Leroy Jones, later known as Amiri Baraka, um, who is a <laughs> interesting character in his own right, father of uh, the current mayor of Newark, Ross Baraka, among many other things. Um, but he, he says... It was founded by me after lunch with Leroy Jones on August 27th, 1959, a day in which I was in love with someone, not Roy, by the way, a blonde. I went back to work and wrote a poem for this person. While I was writing it, I was realizing that if I wanted to, I could use the telephone instead of writing the poem. And so personism was born. Now, I think... Um, I think that this is this is both getting to the heart of the matter and worth sort of considering literally um, because when he's saying that you could use a telephone to have said this, this is not just the, the kind of abstract point. What's the purpose of a poem, right? Uh, why Why poetry instead of more literal forms of communication. It's also why poetry if it's an antiquated technology, right? Now, if you have a telephone to convey sentiments to another person, um, do you still need poetry? Uh, you know, by which I'm, I think he means not that the phone call is as useful as a poem for conducting a seduction, in the sense that seduction is a kind of formal game played out with a definite end state in mind. You're 
pursuing something very clear when you're trying to seduce somebody, but that a telephone is as good as a poem for conveying sentiments. And he's, he doesn't explicate this formally, but the question is there and it's, it's there. You can also see it in the way he's constantly bringing up poetry in the presence of film, you know, and that's why the literal meaning is worth taking seriously. You know, what, what can a poem convey still? Why do you still need these older forms when you have TV? And O'Hara's poetry, just to finish the thought, the whole body of his work, not just like the cheeky manifesto here, but the body of the work forms a kind of answer. And the answer is, it's, he's not imitative of these new technologies, right? He's not, nobody would read his poems and describe, I don't think, uh, cinematic style in his best poetry. They're not cinematic. If anything, you know, what he's imitating in technological terms is the technology of abstract expressionism, uh, the aesthetic technology of abstract expressionist painters. So they're not imitative. He's not imitative of a, a telephone. He's not imitative of cinema, but they're as vital as the new technology. He's trying to make poetic poems vital in the way that a, 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 a vulgar movie is vital, vital in the way that a, a supercharged call to one's lover is vital. That's what I think he's trying to get after. And, and, and I love the idea of you know, the, the poem is being, the, it, the poem is squarely between the poet and the person, right? And, you know, you mentioned that he um, uh, was interested like in the Like the person in the middle of a threesome, by the way. <laughs> yeah, That's what yeah. a lucky Pierre, <laughs> right. which is the metaphor he uses, is, uh, I guess you would call it the number two person yeah. in the uh, tripartite sexual congress. Yeah, yeah. Um, he... In, in a bit on abstract art, uh, uh, he says, its justifications do not come from the acquisitive impulse nor the impulse toward fun, but rather these works are serious because they are not isolated. So out of the populated cavern of self come brilliant, uncomfortable works, works that don't reflect you or your life, though you can know them. Art is not your life. It is someone else's. And that... Um, I think that that sort of insistence, you know, there, it's not just that there's, it's not, you know, I'm crafting this sort of aesthetic object that will exist in the ether, right, which would be one kind of idea of art, but it's also not I am going to be in communion with the reader, right? Art is not your life. It's somebody else's, right? It's I'm in communion with a specific person and yet like be, because of that – um, you can respond to it. Uh, it's not designed to reflect you or your life, uh, though you can know that person, right? Yeah. I had a uh, – I think I've actually mentioned this on the podcast before, but I did one semester of uh, grad school at uh, City University of New York, and I had this great professor, um, Wayne Kostenbaum, who's yep. a New York poet of a later generation – and I, I liked him a lot as a professor. He was a, an interesting guy. Um, he made a statement about O'Hara at some point that I thought was quite a, a brilliant insight. And what he said was that O'Hara 
did to the personality what the high modernists had done to the consciousness, which was which was to fracture the personality in the way that the high modernists had fractured consciousness. And so it's not the it's not the splintering of the uh, of the interior I that perceives the world. You know, it's not the Joycean mm-hmm. breaking apart of perception. It's a refraction of the construction of oneself in the presence of other people. Right? It's this this performance of the self from which you have. So, so O'Hara is saying that the, the poem is written with a definite other person in mind and it's written from one person to another, but the person who is making the address is not always definitively O'Hara in any sense, right? It would be totally, uh, it, it would be to demean O'Hara's work to think that, in all of these poems that have this dashed off extemporaneous quality or that have this sort of epistolary quality, uh, you know, or, or that read as this very direct address to somebody else, having a Coke with you is a famous poem of O'Hara's, a yeah. great poem of O'Hara's. It's written I, in this I very immediate that poem. way. Yeah. Though it's, but, it's but now to, to because I have that, children, I, I have lost all the poetry I used to have and now I just know the lyrics to Frozen. <laughs> well, you know, it's like the the professor who knew uh, 20,000 different species of fish and then every student's name that he had to learn, he'd forget one of them. You know, you just – you reach a, a maximal capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you, if you take that poem as an example, to think that all of the poems like that, then in each of these cases, that it is Frank O'Hara, the person, the, def- the definite – singular fixed entity Frank O'Hara writing to another definite person is to miss the point entirely. This isn't just because they have the quality of a diary at points or an epistolary quality at points doesn't mean that this is his journal that he's exposed to you. He's playing around with a million different forms of himself and of the presentation of himself. So if the, if the, the modernist fracturing was of the, perceptual capacity of the consciousness of the experience of existence o'hara is fracturing the 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 presentation of the self to the world in a way that um reminds you of how exciting and how thrilling that can be to present yourself to another person and to wrap up your experience of something like hey you remember when we took that walk by the the river that night and the way the moon glinted off the water by the piers and and the green beer bottle floated on the wave you know it's but it's not the you who was there that night who's then recapturing that in the letter you write to that person you know you're inventing another form of yourself to be the presenter of that experience. And, and that's what O'Hara is doing, I think. The poem's called Having a Coke with You. It's even more fun than going to St. Sebastian, Irun, Ondai, Biarritz, Bayonne, or being sick to my stomach on the Travesera de Gracia in Barcelona. Partly because in your orange shirt you look like a better, happier St. Sebastian. Partly because of my love for you. Partly because of your love for yogurt. 
partly because of the fluorescent orange tulips around the birches, partly because of the secrecy our smiles take on before people in statuary. It is hard to believe when I'm with you that there can be anything as still, as solemn, as unpleasantly definitive as statuary when right in front of it, in the warm New York four o'clock light. We are drifting back and forth between each other like a tree breathing through its spectacles. And the portrait show seems to have no faces in it at all, just paint. Yeah. And it's not, you know, there's a, there's a bit from, from the, uh, the poet John Paul, uh, the romantic poet that I always quote that I like. He says, books are thick letters to friends, right? Um, and that is, um, you know, one way of, of thinking about literature. And, but it's sort of this, you know, this kind of, humanist impulse of, you know, you write, you write a letter, uh, you write a thick letter to a friend, it can go across the centuries, somebody can pick it up, continue the conversation in this sort of um, circle of readers, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the philosopher Schlauterdijk actually ties this, you know, he says the humanists are initially no more than the cult of the literate. Um, but then in the bourgeois nation state of the 19th and 20th centuries, um, the sort of humanism gets tied to nationalism as you try and use books and literature to inculcate a, uh, a sense of national identity, right? And he says, what are modern nations except the effective fictions of literate publics who have become a like-minded collective of friends through the reading of the same books? Universal obligatory military service for young men and the universal obligation to read the classics for young people of both genders were characteristic of the classical bourgeois state, recalling a period of armed and literate humanity on which the new and old conservatives of today look back, simultaneously helpless and nostalgic and completely unable to provide a media theoretical justification for the importance of literary canon. So that's one sort of old sense of, you know, books as letters to friends, which can tie into this kind of broader political, national sort of ideology formation. I feel like that is very distinct from what O'Hare is doing. Um, uh, there's a lot there. <laughs> well, I'm trying to take this piece by piece. I mean, the... How do you say that guy's name? With like an S-L? Slaughterdike. S-L-O-T-E-R-D-I-J-K. Yeah, right. I keep meaning to read him. He's Um, interesting. You'd like this. This is from Rules for the Human Zoo. I think you'd really like it. Yeah, yeah. That's the book I've been told to read. Yeah. Uh, So that – he's German, right? Yeah. Okay. So that conception of what a nation state is or or what a a nation is Mm -hmm. as a – sort of abstract shared literary consciousness is very much in the tradition of uh, German romantic idealism that produces a very particular form of national consciousness uh, derived from Fichte among others. And, you know, whether that's actually what a nation is, is a, a question we can save for another day. Yeah. I, w- I would point out that uh, Benedict yeah. Anderson makes a similar point about the novel. Um, the newspaper- oh, wait. Explain to me, before you get into Benedict Anderson, explain to me – I'm sorry. Yeah. I missed – how does this – what's the relation to O'Hara here? What's uh- – oh, OK. So, you know, if you take that idea of sort of, you know, a book is a thick letter to friends, right? Um, mm. In 
in that conception, the sort of traditional humanist conception, right? Um, uh, Slaughterdike describes writing as, you know, it shoots an arrow into the air with the objective of revealing an unknown friend and enticing him into the circle of friends, right? In fact, the, the reader who sits down to a thick book can approach as an invitation to a gathering, and should he be moved by the calm tense, he thereby enters the circle of the called, making himself available to receive the message. Thus, we can trace the communitarian fantasy that lies at the root of all humanism back to the model of a literary society in which participa- participation through reading of the canon reveals a common love of inspired and inspiring messages, right? And so I see. Yeah, that, yeah, right. I see. That notion of it's a thick letter to friends, but it's that friend is no, but, actually But it's a friend in a uh depersonalized, mm-hmm. universalized sense, which is very much I think look, if you take the shooting the arrow up into the air point, O'Hara's doing something I mean O'Hara is Cupid. You know, he's shooting mm-hmm. an arrow at somebody's heart. Now yeah. the person who's the the mistake I was saying a moment ago to avoid is the frankly, you know, denigrating assumption that the person whose heart he's shooting an arrow at is always a, a creature from his own life immediately right. in front of him. But, but there is in poetic terms, a definite target. Right. And, and that's what personism is. I think as much as anything else, it's the idea of the definite, the definite targeting of the poem as the, the thrust from uh, between these two definite objects, you know, as opposed to this uh, depersonalized sense of uh, uh, generalized fraternity or something like that. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't have that sort of weight on it, right? There's a bit where he says, you know, like, basically, who cares if people get it? I don't give a damn. Um, you know, too many poets act like a middle-aged mother trying to get her kids to eat too much cooked meat. Nobody should experience anything they don't need to, and if they don't need poetry, bully for them. I like the movies too. After all, only yeah. Whitman and Crane and Williams of the American poets are better than the movies. And I would be remiss and morally irresponsible if I did not tell you, and if I did not tell who's ever here and cares to listen about how I discovered. Frank O'Hara's poetry. And the way I discovered Frank O'Hara's poetry was through the New York subway system. Yep. When I was a teenager, there was, I think actually it's still around, but when I was a teenager, there was a program on the subways called Poetry in Motion. And I'm afraid that uh, fortunes rise and fall and that the poetry in motion of the last 15 years has not been quite as inspiring as what I encountered in my youth, though who knows if that's just me getting old. But when I was in There have been some really school, good poems. Uh, perhaps. But when I was in <laughs> high school, all right, there was a run in a few years. You want to know – look, I don't read that much poetry if I'm being perfectly honest with you. I, I never I, – I, I do read poetry, of course, but I it's not the form that I was most immediately drawn to in the same way that I'm – feel personally uh the novel and the short story are sort of a part of me and i anyway the the poets that i was introduced to by new york subways all right by the d train that's the tiktok i did in gun hill what'd you do last night we did um two whole cars it was me des and me three right and on the first car in small letters it said all you see is and then you know big big you know black silver letters that said crime in the city right 
by the D train in the 1990s, just in a few years, Frank O'Hara, my heart, on the New York subway system, on Poetry in Motion, Wallace Stevens, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. Now Stevens yep. comes up later in O'Hara's Person is a Manifesto, but 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird was on the New York subway system. It was on the D train. There used to be a way you could take those metal rulers you, you had to have in high school and you could jack up the hard plastic frames that the yeah. MTA put the posters in and we used to take them out. And I got – I had a poetry in motion at one point. I think I lost it. And then I also had uh, that long Spanish um, – Soap opera, car, uh, comic soap opera, but the guy who gets AIDS. Do you remember what I'm talking about? No. Or something. Um, anyway. <laughs> and William Blake also. So I, I encountered all of this at a very particular point in time. And it was, you know, it was thrilling and um, opened me up uh, to these to these poets and to these forms of expression. And... Um, do, do you want to just read my heart because it's short and it's yes, really yes. Good. I can read. I can read my heart. Okay. I had to take it off my wall. I have it taped to my wall, so that's why I had to stand up. All right. This is Frank O'Hara's poem, "My Heart." So you you literally just took this off your wall? Yes, I did. I have it uh, taped to my wall. And this is, uh, this is a poem that the D-Train introduced me to. My heart. I'm not going to cry all the time, nor shall I laugh all the time. I don't prefer one strain to another. I'd have the immediacy of a bad movie, not just a sleeper, but also the big, overproduced, first-run kind. I want to be at least as alive as the vulgar. And if some aficionado of my mess says, that's not like Frank, all to the good. I don't wear brown and gray suits all the time, do I? No. I wear work shirts to the opera, often. I want my feet to be bare, I want my face to be shaven, and my heart. You can't plan on the heart. But the better part of it, my poetry, is open. Yeah, top that bell. Uh, yeah, this is this is a a kind of poem that is expressive, I think, of um, a phenomenal optimism about the twentieth century that characterized some of the best American art uh, ever produced, and it's not a. It's not a naive optimism. It's not a precious optimism or a, a maudlin optimism, but it is um, an embrace of uh, the kind of possibilities of, and the, the potentials and the experiences of the American century coming just after World War II from uh, – you know, from an openly gay poet in New York at a time when certainly, though he uh, never tried to hide who he was, that, that there were certainly, uh, you know, there was 
was not necessarily an easy thing to be. Though I don't want to speak for him and, and say what it was or, or wasn't difficult for him, but but there's a, a kind of embrace of the the possibilities right in front of him, you know. And if you compare this for a moment to say T.S. Eliot, this is not to say one is good and the other is bad, but they do exist in a sort of counterpoint to one another. And, you know, Eliot has this idea of the poet as this kind of conductor of echoes through the centuries, you know, this, this, uh, uh, this person who's the figure uh, connecting the resonance of archetypes in this cathedral of history. O'Hara's uh, O'Hara's a guy in the back seat of the movie theater, you yeah. know, who's like riffing brilliantly on uh, on something. Or O'Hara's the chance encounter on the street um, that is not just funny or or um, entertaining for a moment, but that seems to capture something essential and vital about the experience of yeah. being alive at the very moment in which you experience it. There's um, there's, there's a kind of uh, Whitman quality, right, to the way that, that um, he engages with sort of American life, New York life. Um, and there's a there's – a, I'll, I'll read this. Um, Cheslaw Milos. Do you know – how do you pronounce his name? Milos. Milos. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, in The Captive Mind, he writes, The work of human thought should withstand the test of brutal naked reality. If it cannot, it is worthless. Probably only those things are worthwhile which can preserve their validity in the eyes of a man threatened with instant death. A man is lying under machine gun fire on a street in an embattled city. He looks at the pavement and sees a very amusing sight. The cobblestones are standing upright like the quills of a porcupine. The bullets hitting against their edges displace and tilt them. Such moments in the consciousness of a man judge all poets and philosophers. And, um... Jeffrey Hill, uh, the poet, responds to that, um, is what the quoted passage actually communicates is something different. The elitism of the man in the moment. It excludes from aesthetic regeneration those works unbaptized by an arbitrary extreme experience of, quote, brutal naked reality. Um, And he contrasts that with that sort of, you know, the man – facing the, the machine gun bullets to Whitman. He says, Whitman, far from excluding generality and commonality by the sharply particular, intensifies it by such means, making the extremity a revelation of human suffering and of an endurance both exceptional and to be expected of humankind in all its great diversity of natures and capacities. And I think that, um, you know, that uh, broad sort of openness to a lot of a lot of what you know might be excluded by this very sort of rigorous you know Cormac McCarthy has a has a similar sort of aesthetic of like only questions of life and death are worth worth writing about um and you sort of exclude the very thing that actually makes matters of life and death worth writing about in the first place which is the nature of 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 human experience in life Yeah, yeah you lose the contrast I mean this is um so this is the paragraph in Personism where O'Hara mentions Stevens is about abstraction. I'll read a few lines from it. He mm-hmm. writes, abstraction in poetry, not painting, involves personal removal by the poet. For instance, the decision involved in the choice between the nostalgia of the infinite and 
the nostalgia for the infinite, defines an attitude towards degrees of abstraction, the nostalgia of the infinite representing the greater degree of abstraction, removal, and negative capability, as in Keats or Mallarmé. Now, that's, first of all, a great illustrative example, because you can immediately appreciate, just in hearing that, that nostalgia of the infinite is more abstract than yeah. nostalgia for the infinite, right? Because in nostalgia for the infinite, it's, it is you. You, right. are, you understand this to refer to a human being who is experiencing the nostalgia. In nostalgia of the infinite, it's not clear who's experiencing the nostalgia. Is the universe, you know, is the infinite experiencing its own, the nostalgia for itself? Is this just uh, nostalgia as a totally uh, unmoored quality that exists independent of any subject? You know, it's, it's not clear. So you get that right away. What... See, what doesn't work, let's say, for me and Second Avenue from O'Hara is that you lose these steps up and down the planes of abstraction. Uh, it's, it's too relentlessly abstract in its surrealist imagery, which is its own form of abstraction, even when it tries to be, you know, this kind of... Uh, transubstantiated visceral experience. I, I will also say abstract. that with, with O'Hara in general, right? Like to be able to do this right, you're walking a pretty fine tightrope, right? Like, see, when the poems work, it feels incredibly natural and, and sort of profound in a way that doesn't strike you as somebody trying to be profound. Um, it has an emotional hit. Um, the, you know, you, you feel in the presence of that great com conversationalist that you want to draw closer to. Uh, other times it can be wearying. And, yeah, yeah, but you're exactly right. You know, it's like the, it's, that's the rhythm in part. The mm -hmm. rhythm is the prosaic to the abstract. It's ba 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 da ba ba da pa, you know, stop, yeah. break, pause, collect. Mm -hmm. Ah, expand out into the abstract. And, and uh, I wish I should have found uh, a good example of that from one of his poems that I had writing. Oh, uh, you know what? Here you go. From Ave Maria. Mm -hmm. Mothers of America, let your kids go to the movies. Get them out of the house so they won't know what you're up to. It's true that fresh air is good for the body. But what about the soul? that grows in darkness, embossed by silvery images. And when you grow old, as grow old, you must. They won't hate you. They won't criticize you. They won't know. They'll be in some glamorous country. It goes on. But, yeah. you know, what, what a wonderful immediacy in that first line. And yeah. sort of warmth, you know? Mm -hmm. Mothers of America, let your kids go to the movies. You don't read that as chastisement, you know? It's not like, uh, there. it's not scolding. I don't hear that as scolding at all. There's something warm and, and, and um, energetic about it. And, and it sets up the abstraction to work. It's that movement between scales, I think, that makes it so affecting. So, Phil, I think uh, we've said most everything there is to say about Frank O'Hara. I strongly recommend that people go out. and I would probably start with lunch poems if mm -hmm. I was going to recommend some O'Hara. Uh, meditations in an emergency is, might be the more 
famous collection at this point, but I think of Lush Poems as the primary one. Okay, yeah. Don't start with Second Avenue. Yeah, don't start with Second Avenue. (laughs) Second Avenue is for the completists out there. Um, (laughs) So tell me something about Frank Bedard. So Frank Bedard's you know grew up in California, son of a farmer, um, uh, gay. Ultimately studied under Robert Lowell at Harvard. Lowell was a sort of kind of key figure, uh, writing poetry around the same time as, as Frank O'Hara, um, uh, coming coming out with sort of important works around the same time uh, in the kind of confessional poetry model, which I think the title is sort of gives you an idea of uh, of what it is, and uh, you know where the the poet is. You know, there's a clear eye who you identify with the poet himself uh, or herself. Um, Sylvia Plath is kind of considered in this school, and she was influenced by Lowell as well. Um, and they're sort of sharing kind of deeply personal things, kind of breaking, you know, the bounds of what you would expect somebody to be opening up about. Um, Lowell talked about sort of, you know, experimental health uh, issues and, and that sort of thing. And Bidart is kind of. Uh, his poetry often feels really intensely personal as well, but is often kind of in this, you know, Ellen West is, reads like an intensely personal poem that is written in a persona, right? And he's famous for, you know, a variety of sort of extreme persona poems. Um, The Tom Slay writing about uh, uh, Bidart, Bedard is Western civilization scholar, Ouija-like student of the noirish edge, and uh, is frequently engages very directly with ideas, um, but uh, is always sort of so there'll be these kind of very sort of abstract, sometimes theological or philosophical concepts that will in, you know he'll introduce into the poetry, but is always kind of immediately becomes grounded in human action, human personality. Um, and yeah. yeah. And Ellen West, you know, he has a later poem called Writing Ellen West where he makes it clear that writing Ellen West is about his relationship with his mother who was very possessive, who wanted him to return home at the end of his life, end of her life, and he didn't. And then she died and he was sort of struggling with with guilt, with the knowledge of, you know, sort of what being close to his mother, how that would limit him in his life. Um, and... Ellen West became this sort of um, uh, way of exercising that. So I think that sort of sets up Frank Bedart. Anything? So the the description I'd heard uh, often in reading about him, and I was introduced to Frank Bedart by Phil this week. So it's not somebody I'd been familiar with prior to this, but um, dramatic monologue is something he's known for. So Ellen West is. Yeah a form of a kind of dramatic monologue that he does these poems that have a, a narrative quality, but the narrative is not told by a, it's not an epic narrative, right? It's not the uh, Odysseus. It's uh, these sort of uh, impressionistic personal narratives told through a character. Um, and Ellen West, I think, fits that fairly well. It's uh, intersp- So Ellen West was a real person. She was uh, a young woman um, who was the patient 
of this, was he German or Austrian? Swiss, I think. Swiss. Swiss. Okay. So Ellen West uh, was the patient of this well-known doctor um, named Ludwig Binswanger. You nailed that. Thank you. Known for uh, a kind of a form of existential analysis. He was a student of Freud's at some point. He and Jung did some collaborative stuff. And I think he was, uh, Binswanger was, uh, was a influence on Lacan. So he's a, an influential mm-hmm. guy, perhaps uh, forgotten now. But he has this patient. Uh, she's a young woman and she's an anorexic. Uh, and she has this kind of compulsive anorexia and in the mode of his, I guess, form of analysis or his school of analysis, he draws these, uh, imputes an existential quality to the sources of her, uh, her anorexia. She eventually kills herself. And Bedart's poem is, it's, it's uh, got two parts essentially, or, or two modes that it moves between. One is these long, uh, diaristic passages from the character Ellen West describing her experiences in a poetic language. And then that, these poetic uh, passages from the West character are then intercut with these much more dry, expository, diagnostic passages written in the language of the Binswanger character. And I, I don't know, perhaps they actually come from real notes. He took I believe the they do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it's him diagnosing her and, um, that's the, the form of the poem. That's the kind of formal architecture of it. I think it, it's very effective. It works very well. Yeah. The poem itself is very effective. And what did, what did you make affecting. of it coming to it cold? You weren't familiar with, uh, Bidart. What did I make of it coming to it cold? I, um, that it's a haunting, that it was haunting. Um, uh, what did, that, that it was immediate, that, that it was engrossing and haunting that I, let me read the first line, which I think sort of introduces things. So the first line of the poem is, I love sweets. Heaven would be dying on a bed of vanilla ice cream. And this, keep in mind, is uh, being voiced by this West character who can't bring herself to eat because she's so disgusted by the act of animal consumption um, and, and is an the, the, anorexic. The first, yeah, the first uh, Biswanger note says, um, you know, now at the beginning of Ellen's 32nd year, her physical condition is deteriorated still further. Her use of laxatives increases beyond measure. Every evening she takes 60 to 70 tablets of a laxative with the result that she suffers tortured vomiting at night and violent diarrhea by day, often accompanied by a weakness of the heart. She's thinned down to a skeleton and weighs only 92 pounds. Yeah, and what you get in the poem is that she's not just afflicted by anorexia. She's mm. highly intelligent and is so is also afflicted by her awareness of her affliction yeah. And she and this perhaps is, you know, the existential quality of Binswanger is that she is there's this double affliction. She can't bring herself to eat except in those moments, those very rare moments when she binges and then uh, takes laxatives. But she's disgusted by the act of eating, but is also 
you know, disturbed, um, depressed by her own condition. But she also has a sort of philosophical gloss on it, right? So yeah, you know, after that yes. opening, she sort of so – body is the image of uh, – you know, uh, she wants to be the sort of blonde, elegant girl whose body is the image of her soul. My doctors tell me I must give up this di- ideal, but I will not, cannot. Only to my husband, I'm not simply a case, but he is a fool. He married meat and thought it was a wife. Why am I a girl? I ask my doctors, and they tell me they don't know that it is just given. But it has such implications, and sometimes I even feel like a girl. Ah, that is great, first of all. Why am I a girl? I ask my doctors, and they tell me they don't know that it's just <laughs> yeah. given. But it has such implications. Now, let me say something here about the formal qualities, about the grammar of this poem. Because if, like me, you're somebody who has very uh, mixed feelings about free verse poetry, this is a poem worth reading. The very first stanza, I love sweets, heaven would be dying on a bed of vanilla ice cream, is written in a way that instructs a reader quite precisely and artfully and how to read it. So it's I love sweets, comma, long hyphen, like an M dash plus a dash. Then the next line, heaven is double indented. So it appears as the only word on the second line beneath the latter part of the hyphen. And then the third line would be dying on a bed of vanilla ice cream is written out in full and ends in an ellipses. And it's a very clear, you know, very precise, intuitively diagrammatic way of instructing you in how she and what her voice sounds like. I love sweets, heaven, and it draw. It's like what? It's like descending a step yeah. that drop from the hyphen to the heaven. Now, for me, a lot of free verse poetry feels like a cheap trick played by. Uh, cheap tricksters who, you know, use, um, you know, it's like an emperor has no clothes things. Like they use these arbitrary moves in the free verse because they don't have to follow any rules to pretend like there's an artfulness to what is in fact perhaps meaningful to them in sentimental terms or like uh, has some sort of personal quality. But but lacks any kind of coherent grammar for the reader. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the thing I always come back to is the line breaks. You know, if you remember, Phil, many years ago when we were discussing poetry in the, in the workshop, we were both in this veterans workshop that we did. We read these poems with uh, our instructor at the time, Lauren. And I always used to say, why is the line break there? Why? Why there? Why is this where the line break is? And in a lot of these poems, there was no answer that you couldn't give me a satisfying answer for why the line break was here and not there. And it wasn't even a fun, artful arbitrariness. It was just capriciousness. And if it was capriciousness that admitted it was capriciousness, I would have been all right with it. The thing about these free verse con artists is that they, they're capricious <laughs> And then want to trick you into thinking that you just lack the sophistication to understand why the line break is there. No, 
No, you're just, this is just a petty tyranny of, you know, it's like the DMV person who's like, no, you have to wait in line for six hours. You're like, why do I have to wait in line for six hours? There's nobody else ahead of me in line. Why can't you take me? Like, oh, no, no, no. Well, you know, you just have to wait. That's how it is. You know, it's like bureaucratic tyranny, this, um, this poetry free verse line break stuff. Yeah. But, but you read something like this and it returns me to the awareness that I can get too cynical about that when it started and it still can be for some people, it was a breakout of formalism into another kind of expressive uh, vocabulary into a new kind of grant and expressive grammar. And that it could be artful and deliberate and, uh, not just a way to beat you over the head. Yeah, and it, it's it's very clear that you know he's using he's using form as rigorously as any sort of more formalist poet. And actually, sort of early poems that he wrote, like in the uh, the new um, Half Light collected poems of Frank Bedart, uh, which is really good. Um, he went back and he revised some of his early poems because it took him a while to get to this form. You know, it's not. Uh, of, of sort of trying to present the voice on page uh, in in a particular way, um, and so you know the 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 early poems have been restructured to fit the voice that he kind of only later figured out how to arrange on the page in a way that would convey meaning to the reader. And, and I think Ellen West and, and a lot of his poems work really really well that way. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that he would have gone back and revised the earlier works. Mm -hmm. um, this, for me, certainly is uh, very effective for what it is. The voice comes to the, this, this person, this suffering consciousness, this afflicted character of West comes through very clearly and forcefully and poignantly. And she uh, sort of goes through these different stages in the poem in the beginning, so her by herself. She's talking about, you know, lying on a bed of vanilla ice cream, her husband not understanding her. Why am I a girl? Then she's in a in another passage. She's in a diner, um, first enchanted by this couple who sits next to her, and then disgusted first by the act of them feeding one another. Which, to be then, fair, is actually disgusting. <laughs> to yeah, but why... Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, for different reasons. But but why is it disgusting to her here? You know, because she starts off, she looks at them, right? It's so she's in this uh she's in this restaurant in this cafe by herself. This very attractive couple sits down next to her. She's quite taken with the two of them. She says, I couldn't remember when I had seen a man so attractive. I didn't know why he was almost a male version of her. I had the sudden mad notion that I wanted to be his lover. But then after this, you know, this initial fiery attraction, he sees, she sees them feeding each other and their behavior somehow sickened me the way each gladly put the food the other had offered into his mouth. I knew what they were. I knew they slept together an immense depression came over me. And for her, the act of them feeding each other is 
directly connected to the act of them sleeping with each other. And all of it is connected to this rotting, decomposing flesh, you know, her dumb husband married this meat body and the, she wants to, to be preserved, embalmed. She wants to be embalmed while still alive because on some deep level, she's horrified by the thought of, decomposition and you know and nature the, right i loathe yeah, nature, nature. Yes. even as a child i saw that the natural process of aging is for one's middle to thicken one's skin to blotch as happened to my mother and her mother there's almost like a sort of echo of uh, jean Marie we talked about before this sort of you know the the natural process of nature is somehow you know at odds with a kind of broader, more spiritual concern. And then later she says, I think, no, the idea of being thin conceals the ideal not to have a body, which is not trivial. Or trivial. And then later in the poem, then I think again, no, this I is anterior to name, gender, action, fashion, matter itself. Trying to stop my hunger with food is like trying to appease thirst with ink. Yeah. There's nobody better at this revulsion at nature than the French. And it starts with the sad. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, it starts uh, with the sod, and, and uh, Welbeck is the living expositor of this. You know, Welbeck is the living heir to the revulsion at nature. Um, and but where the sod's answer to the revulsion at nature is the embrace of crime and the embrace of uh, rape and and complete uh, uh, criminal dominion as the. Uh, lording over nature, the mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a the too is amazing on nature. Yeah, it's a very particular French genius. I, I, I'm not <laughs> sure why that is. Um, uh, this is I'll, I, I love this passage from Demestre, so we can cut that out, this out if we don't want to. But I'm just going to read it to you really quick. This is Demestre. Um, In the whole vast domain of living nature, there reigns an open violence, a kind of prescriptive fury which arms all the creatures to their common doom. As soon as you leave the inanimate kingdom, you find the degree of violent death inscribed on the very frontiers of life. You feel it already in the vegetable kingdom. Um, It sort of is describing uh, how, you know, every, how many plants die, how many are killed. Uh, There are insects of prey, reptiles of prey, birds of prey, fishes of prey, quadrupeds of prey. There is no instant of time when one creature is not being devoured by another. Over all these numerous races of animals, man is placed, and his destructive hand spares nothing that lives. He kills to obtain food, and he kills to clothe himself. He kills to adorn himself. He kills in order to attack, and he kills in order to defend. He kills to instruct himself, and he kills to amuse himself. He kills to kill. Proud and terrible king, he wants everything, and nothing resists him. Yeah. Yeah, um, this will certainly convince people that we're not uh, reactionaries. <laughs> oh, no. I, mean, I, I don't. I, I'm not sympathetic yeah, to DeMaster's philosophy, but he was a good writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. Well, we'll be the judge of that, Phil. Uh, the tribunal can decide. Um, despite Phil's counter revolutionary sympathies, I think it's. Worth saying that this revulsion in nature is a particular French genius and that there it takes different forms. So whereas, you know, it, you get into Maestra, I think something closer to what you get in Desaad, which is uh, the human lording over um, the riotous, uh, uh, bestial, animal um, nature. You think you own whatever land you land on. The earth is just a dead thing you can claim 
But I know every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. I think the only people who are people are the people who look and think like you. And what you get in West, um, who is not French but shares in this, is this desire for self-abnegation. So mm-hmm. rather than destroy nature by um, by conquest, by 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 destruction, you vanquish the self that is uh, prisoner to nature. You know. So rather, so so if the human and if the ideal is because what 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 West wants is something we all want on some level. She just wants it too much, and it ruins her. And yeah. she just wants to be un, uh, incorruptible. She wants to be. She wants to be uh, pure spirit. Right. She wants to be pure spirit. There's she a wants there's to be a pure um, spirit. again from Tom Slay. He's talking about sort of Bidard in general. He says, meditative grandeur that seems to soar above human chances is rebroadcast in Bidard's voicing as a deeply private, tormented prayer and then let down into animal extremes. And I think that sort of describes what kind of happens. You sort of – it's like what is kind of deeply haunting about the poem is how – compelling her voice is, right? That and and how what the kind of case that she makes for herself is that then gets brutally intercut by these sort of case history reminders of what is actually physically happening. And it kind of gets at this kind of core sort of, you know, mind body problem uh, and sort of, you know, what even an I is, right? Yeah. Yeah. There, and there's and whether a- it can be disentangled from sort of, you know, Givenness in nature. So, and there is a middle passage where it's West musing on this uh, opera singer uh, with whom she'd been very taken, Maria Callas. Maria Callas, mm-hmm. um, and she'd seen this performance of Tosca, and she's writing about Callas having lost all this weight and the effect that the the weight loss had on her ability to perform and her and her work as an artist and it's very much um related to this idea of the the spirit and the body being prisoner to one another um yeah she starts losing weight people the gossip in milan was that Callas had swallowed a tapeworm but of course she hadn't the tapeworm was her soul uh, how her soul, uncompromising, insatiable, must have loved eating the flesh from her bones, right? And then it diminishes her voice, right? Uh, the voice diminishes in volume, size. The top notes became shrill, unreliable. Um, and, no, you know, and then she is kind of grappling with this, the art that Callus is producing, you know, and uh, says, no one knows why. Perhaps her mind, ravenous, still insatiable, sense that to struggle with the shreds of a voice she must make her artistry subtler, subtler, more refined, more capable of expressing humiliation, rage, betrayal. Perhaps the opposite. Perhaps her spirit loathed the unending struggle to embody itself, manifest itself on a stage whose mechanics and suffocating customs seemed expressly designed to annihilate spirit. Right? Uh, and then she sort of goes to this bit where uh, in Tosca, where at the end, the voice reaching herringly for the notes, art has repaid me like this. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a great one. And, and so she actually prefers the, the, the 
she, she seems to prefer the late Callus, right? Um, I think she's. Do you think it's that clear cut? You know, I think that there is a tension there that yeah. West is aware of. Yeah. Um, and that she's not. Um, I think she's divided. Um, yeah. But she can't reconcile the division in herself. And so she moves inevitably, she moves towards an inevitable conclusion, which is suicide. Um, yeah. Because at a, a point a bit later, she she's on this train and she talks about, you know, there are these ordinary people on the train, but she says she can't help being by revolted by them as creatures. Um, yeah. She's revolted by life, finally. You know, she's revolted by the living. And so she has to, she has to um, take herself away from the flesh. And she does that in the way she knows how. And uh, earlier she's, uh, she falls in love with a woman in the hospital uh, with her who I, I think, I guess I figured that it was another anorexia patient. Yeah, um, I think so. And so in the final passage, she writes a letter to um, this woman uh, whom she'd fallen in love with and, and mentions also her husband. But it moves inevitably towards that. But the the movement towards this intercut with these diagnostic expository passages, it's very affecting. It, it's um, And it's written in a way that's both uh, formal – and yet, um, how would you put it? Dramatic monologue is the way to put it. There's a there's yeah. a, a quality you could easily see this being performed on the stage. Right? Yeah. You could easily see this being staged, not because there's not because there's any set design inherent in it, um, but because you could see this being read aloud as a kind of testimony to the universe or as a, or as a testimony to a general audience, right? If O'Hara is writing to a specific person, right, this is being written to, um, if not to posterity, then to, uh, uh, to, to whom exactly? I'm not sure. Uh, to an audience though, to a more general audience, um, to an uncertain audience, but not, I don't feel this, even though the final passage is addressed this to her, to the lover in the hospital, it doesn't feel to me as if it, this, this in its entirety, right? Because it's not just yeah. the final passage. This in its entirety clearly isn't written for any one person. I don't think it's this testament to the life of Ellen West. Um, yeah. Very good stuff. I mean, you know, sad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but sometimes good stuff is sad, they say. Yep. Well, I um I could I could probably talk about Frank Bedard for a while, but I think we've gone on for a long time. Um and I what I want to continue talking about is like sacramentality in poetry, so we should probably <laughs> um, another time. I don't know. Um, well, maybe I'll say this. Uh, I was thinking uh, that on the one hand, the the reason that I paired this with 
we should probably talk about the reason we I paired this with O'Hara. And one of it is there's a kind of sort of there's a sort of kind of plain spoken quality. It doesn't feel uh despite the fact that you know, there's this very really rig- rigorous structure. It feels like someone talking to you, right? Uh, yeah. It feels very direct and immediate. Um, and it's there's also what you were saying about with O'Hara with the steps to the different stages of abstraction, right? Like mm-hmm. that is managed brilliantly in this um, in this poem, where it never feel you know he's never losing you along the way, uh, and it, everything sort of every step outside of abstraction seems tied to something really vital that is related to the story that he's telling, the person that he's trying to sort of create um, and sort of whatever it is that he himself is trying to to sort of express as the author. Um, you know, and it's also sort of just something that's kind of fascinating to me. Um, you know, there's, there's this relation to um, – with – O'Hara with art, right? And um, I always think of there's a there's a bit from uh, David Jones, the great um, modernist poet who served in World War One, wrote uh, in parenthesis where he he was also a painter, um, and he was speaking of a uh, I think it was a, of a Cezanne. Uh, this is not a representation of a mountain; it is mountain under the form of paint, right? And that sort of desire not necessarily to not to represent but to actually embody um and that sort of embodiment problem and whether you can actually do that with art seems sort of deeply important to sort of frank bit art um and yeah yeah, yeah, that's that's an interesting point because there's something similar um you know, there's a great um, – actually, it's not one of my favorites. I was, I was going to say it's a great O'Hara poem. What is it called? Why I Am Not a Painter? I Am Not yeah. a Painter. Yeah. Um, but it's a famous one. It's one that gets cited a lot in this regard. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's about an orange, I'll, I'll tell you that. But O'Hara is grappling with something similar and I think arrives at a different method. But it's a yeah. question that's important on both and one right. I suspect we will not resolve in the next minute or so. Right, though though O'Hara O'Hara feels comfortable in his skin, and you know, Ellen West is entirely about not being. Um, yeah, you know that's a it's a good note to end on. I think actually, there's something part of what's um, part of what's so moving about O'Hara is there's this exuberance in O'Hara. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because. Um, he writes some very gay poems, but they're not campy. Yeah. And part of the reason why they're not campy, I think, is because he's openly gay. And, you know, as a straight guy, I can find camp alienating sometimes. And I, I think that that's part of the point, right? I mean, camp is constructed to be, part of, you know, in historical terms, the construction of camp is supposed to be somewhat if not alienating, then confusing to a straight sensibility, right? But I mean, it's, it's coded. It's a hidden, by necessity, a kind of coded uh, form of communication. And, um, and I think that codedness can sometimes be uh, 
you know, it can be difficult to translate or, or um, can feel alienating for me. But it's not that O'Hara's better because he's not campy, but he's distinct not only, let's say, from other uh, some other gay poets who would emerge not long after him. He's different also from a lot of the other American poets of his time. I mean, the the exuberance in O'Hara's poetry is similar in a way to... There's something close to the beatniks in it, you know? And he, it's not by mistake that he mentions Ginsburg, But it's uh, more fun, I think, aesthetically more sophisticated, even mm-hmm. when it's... Uh, even when it appears to be more uh, naturalistic or, or, or more uh, unrefined, I think it's actually more sophisticated. Um, but that's part of what's made him last, I think. Yeah, yeah. 